didn't actually plan that I would be talking about family this morning. It just sort of worked out that way. I find the Spirit tends to work these things out. Uh, because I have the bittersweet honor this morning of sending two of my children into the mission field today. Uh, Jesse and Andy will be leaving pretty much right after church because uh, they've got a, a trek that they need to make down to Arkansas. And uh, they will be spending three months in intensive training and discipleship and missions. And uh, sometime after the first of the year, we'll be in the mission field somewhere in the world. We don't know yet. Somewhere in the world for about two months. And so it's a very uh, exciting time for them and, and for us to watch all of this happening. Uh, but... Selfishly, I am not really enjoying dealing with um, leaving. Uh, I have been trying to distract myself and not spend too much time obsessing about it. So I had a free preview of a streaming channel this week, and I have been binge-watching Star Trek. It's a good solution to my problem. I grew up watching Star Trek, the original Star Trek in rerun forms on every afternoon, and was part of our normal routine as kids to watch, watch Star Trek. All those fantastic special effects, those paper mache rocks and and uh, creatures in rubber masks and all that stuff. It was, it was very exciting at the time. Now it's campy, but it was very exciting at the time. Uh, been watching one of the latest Star Trek series. There's been so many movies and series that have generated from that one show that was only actually on the air for a few years, but has turned into this phenomenon. And being reminded as I watched this program about Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future and how different it was. Uh, you know, science fiction is almost always really dark. Most science fiction movies are extremely dark and dystopian and give you this view of the future that's like everybody's just sort of fighting for survival. Roddenberry had a very different idea, and his vision of the future for Star Trek was incredibly optimistic. It was a very different kind of, kind of, of program because he imagined that centuries into the future, humanity would be evolved, that, that we would have advanced beyond our internal conflicts, that we, we would have advanced beyond bigotry and, and racism and and our national divisions. And so in the original Star Trek series, you know, you had men and women and black and white and Asian and, and, a, and a Russian, a Russian there in, in the control room, which, you know, in the 60s was mm, scary stuff. But he envisioned we, we'll move past all of this. We'll evolve and we'll, we'll, we'll move on to a higher plane. And we'll be principled people. And this vision that he has for the, 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 the Federation of Planets and the Starfleet, it's all so idealistic and optimistic. And these, these Starfleet officers, they're moral and they're equitable and they're fair and they're principled and they're good. And as they encounter these terrible things sometimes as they travel through the universe, they greet these terrible things with this goodness 
that's just woven through their character, and everybody's really committed to this vision of Starfleet. And then, of course, there are insurmountable odds that they have to face, to which they often apply technology that they invented five minutes ago, and without trying anything, without practice, without testing, the new technology always works. But it works at the last possible second when the, the universe is about to collapse on itself with a second to spare the technology works. And it's a good thing that it works at the last minute because for some reason, when there's no time to be had and the universe is in absolute peril, the cast always finds a few minutes to stop and have an emotionally charged conversation about what's happening. I'm thinking, if things are so bad as you say, you might want to start doing something and stop talking. But it always works out. It always works out. And this is the first clue that this is fake. It's not just fake because it always works out, and it's not just fake because it's a science fiction series set centuries into the future that features, features hundreds of humanoid alien races who we're able to communicate with. It's fake because it assumes that if you leave humanity to its own, it will evolve to the point where people will just be good. As a matter of fact, Roddenberry's vision is rather famous for its absence of any kind of faith or religion. It is a society built on the blessings of science, all will be well. Without God, without faith, humanity will become more evolved, more intelligent, more righteous. I don't know about you, but I watch the news, and I haven't come to this conclusion. I, I, I am not quite convinced that our national leaders and the bureaucracy that they have created is altruistic and virtuous. I'm pretty sure they just all want to be in power. And so the Federation is this wonderful vision of a bureaucracy that is kind, a bureaucracy that is efficient. How efficient is ours? Miserably inefficient, and do you know why? because the core purpose of government is to spend other people's money. None of it works, and none of it works because humanity is not inherently good. And when you take God and God's righteousness out of the equation, they don't come to good conclusions. They don't come to positive spaces. Godlessness is always plagued by the mythology that we will have a better idea than God himself. That we'll be able to design something better. We'll be able to design something more fair. We'll be more efficient. We'll be more loving. We'll be more moral when we leave God out of the picture. 
but godlessness is itself the disease. It is godlessness that causes sin and death. It is godlessness that causes chaos. It is godlessness that causes loss and affliction and brokenness. And Paul has been arguing, as we've studied through Colossians, that the sacred cure to all of this brokenness is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. I hope by this point in the study that we have made it clear that this is not a platitude. This is not just religious talk. This is not just church speak. That the supremacy of Jesus is a real thing and that by coming under the supremacy of Jesus, by returning to the order that he created, by returning to the intent of God's creation, we begin to mend the brokenness. This is the sacred cure. This is what we believe as, as, as followers of Jesus Christ. This is what we believe fixes everything. And yet, we cannot hardly help ourselves from meddling with the definition of things. We can't hardly help ourselves from thinking that our idea of how to do things is going to be a better idea than God's idea. And so as Paul is, is, moves into the, the closing chapters of this brief letter, he begins to cover some practicalities. And we find ourselves now talking about, we've been talking about the practicalities of, uh, of marriage. We started talking about the practicalities of parenting. We're just talking about the practicalities of family life. And so in Colossians chapter 3, starting with verse 18, the, the, here's the whole passage. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Hardly a comprehensive list of how to have healthy families. He just sort of hits the highlights. He's just sort of touching on things. It's not meant to be comprehensive. As a matter of fact, it's meant to be, in effect, a checklist. This is a checklist of the sacred things about family life. The sacred order. And this sacred order comes slamming its head up against a deceptive philosophy so common in our culture that the concept of family benefits from constant redefinition. Just like Roddenberry's sort of rose-colored vision of human evolution, we imagine that we can contort this model of family, we can change it, we can manipulate it, we can come up with all kinds of different versions of it. And not only is the mythology that we can create all these versions of family, the mythology is that every permutation of the family that we create is equally valid and effective. And that's a lie. We support this idea that it's all the same, that there's no difference with research. But if you look at that research, we'll have two things in common, almost invariably. The sample size of that research will be very small, and it will look exclusively 
at the impact of these family models on very young children. When we look at much larger scoped research with a lot more individuals involved, and we look at adults to see what the outcome was of being raised in all these different new family models, the research tells a very different story. It tells a story that demonstrates that a man and a woman who are married, who have children, will have by far the most positive outcomes with their family life. Far and away. This is in spite of the fact that many such households are pretty dysfunctional already. Now, I don't mean to say this morning that non-traditional families are doomed to fail. That's not the point. The point is, we need to know what the ideal is. We need to stop pretending that everything else is just as good as the way God designed it to be. The truth is, the family is sacred, and it is founded upon several sacred principles. Among them are these, that this is a man and a woman who are united in a permanent bond of oneness. That bond of oneness naturally and rather beautifully gives rise to offspring. Now we have a new family in which husbands and fathers embrace moral responsibility for their household, in which wives and mothers cultivate nurture and love and beauty in their household. And together they model what healthy masculinity and femininity look like. They demonstrate that compatible oppositeness of their creation. They are parents who deliberately and intentionally teach righteousness to their children. And they are children who honor their parents with love, respect, and obedience. Now, as I describe this ideal to you, do you feel just a little bit inadequate? Because I do. I do. The fact is that nobody gets it right. Nobody gets this perfect. This is one of my weaknesses, I, I, in all honesty. Early on as a counselor, when I was newly graduated, had this fantastic degree in counseling, was going to ready to go out and change the world. One of my biggest weaknesses was this anxiety I had of recognizing that I don't have a perfect marriage and I don't have a perfect family. How am I supposed to help anybody else? And I had to kind of get over this because guess what? There are no perfect marriages and there are no perfect families. That's all smoke and mirrors. That's all play and pretend. Those guys on national TV that look like they've got it all together all the time, they never make any mistakes, forget it. It's not real. Because the truth is, our best efforts are subject to our collective fallen nature. In other words, we're sinners. We get this wrong. 
we act selfishly. We act foolishly. We make the wrong choices. All you got to do is read through the Old Testament. See how many of the families in the Old Testament meet this ideal. Some of the most significant, most important families in the Old Testament don't even come close. Adam and Eve start their family with two sons. One of them killed the other one. By comparison, you're probably doing fine. But making comparisons between my brokenness and the brokenness of others is not a good way to form a healthy family, is it? It's tempting, more comforting at times, but it doesn't really work. The point of this biblical ideal is not to shame us, and it's not to invalidate whatever family model you are living in. The point of the ideal is to give us something to work towards. Whatever shape our families take, however we have come together, whatever brokenness we have endured, and whatever brokenness we as individuals bring to the table. This is the ideal. This is what we work towards. And so if you're a single parent, if you're a single mom, God bless you. But you know you're probably going to have to work a little harder to make sure that there is a moral, godly, masculine influence in your kid's life so that they know what that looks like. And I don't mean just little boys. Little girls need to know too. And if you're a step family, God bless you. But you're going to have to work a little bit harder to overcome the chaos of multiple households and that anxiety about family not being permanent. And if you're a, an adoptive family, God bless you. can't think of anything more loving than to open your home to someone else's child. Love them as your own. But you're going to have to work a little bit harder to overcome their anxiety about that separation and, 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 and anxieties about abandonment. If you're a traditional family, mommy and daddy and 2.3 children, Guess what? We're broken too. We have to work to get closer to this ideal. This companion passage to the, our passage in Colossians this morning, uh, in Ephesians chapter uh, 6, Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. What, what is that? The training and the instruction of the Lord. That is more than Sunday school classes. It's more than a catechism. It's more than uh, a curriculum that we could put our children through. The training and instruction of the Lord. Like we talked about when we were reading from, from Deuteronomy, is a life that is shaped by the sacred truth of our creation. Remember in Deuteronomy, it talks about impressing these things, impress them on your children. That means that I have to take the shape of these things. And then as I press into my children's life, 
and they are forming themselves against who I am. They are, unbeknownst to them sometimes, taking the shape that God has impressed upon me. But again, we run up against a deceptive philosophy that the influence of family on children is minimal compared to the culture or to individual will. In other words, the world is taking our kids somewhere and our kids as individuals are making choices and are taking them somewhere and we're just doing battle against these things and a lot of us feel overwhelmed. We feel powerless. Their peers and their social pressures and these emerging identities that the culture tells them are solid, unchanging, immovable. Parents begin to adopt the language of helplessness. Just nothing I can do. Begin to accept the inevitability of rebellion. Start talking about how our children are out of control. A little secret for you. From all my studies, my years in counseling and ministry, here's a little secret to pass on to you. All children are out of control. Control is mythology. We don't really have control. Control is something we exercise with very small children with an enormous degree of failure, by the way. Try to control your children when they're sitting on the pew next to you at church. Try to keep them quiet, under control. How well does that work? You remember? doesn't work that well. Try to control your children so that they stay in the yard and not in the street. It's a constant battle because they're not in control. Everything's out of control. The problem is we have more of the mythology of control when our children are small. And then as they grow up into teens and young adults, if we're still employing this same model, we're pulling our hair out. If control has not grown from control to respect and influence, we're beating our head against a wall and they're just angry. That's the way that works. The fact is that the influence of our very self-centered, very godless culture is, in fact, profound upon our children. But... That is not a reason for us to surrender. That is a call to arms. We have to work that much harder. We have to cultivate the influence in our children's lives that we need in order to combat the deception that is currently calling to them. The truth is that family influence is still the single most significant predictor of a child's success. Healthy, biblical families will positively impact the outcomes of childhood. There is no question about this. We don't even have to be believers to know this. We can just look at the research. But the development of strong, moral, 
social and relational influence in our children's lives is an even better predictor of where they're going. Now, I have four children of, uh, uh, that you, you already know that I'm insanely proud of, of all of them. I have four children, all adults now. It's a weird thing to think about. I have four children who, aside from the fact that I am humbled just to know such good people, I am blessed. I have a daughter who's studying worship arts at St. Louis Christian College. I have a son who, aside from being on the youth band, designed and manages most of our church technology. And now I have two daughters that I'm sending into the mission field, and by the way, leaving an enormous void in church ministry here behind them. The culture looks at this particular family dynamic and says, wow, you're lucky to have such great kids. Okay, can I just set the record straight? I am very imperfect as a husband and father. Our family is dysfunctional in several different ways. I personally can cite numerous failures and things that I wish I'd done better, things I wish I was better at right now. But to suggest that where we are as a family is an accident is repulsive. This was intentional. Now, that's not to say that I take all the credit. I have been deeply blessed by the grace of God. I have been deeply blessed that in a lot, so many times, so many times, godly people from our church families stepped into the void created by our own lack of skill and provided influence in my children's life that was formational. I am deeply blessed that I've had mentors who guided us through the periods of our deepest ignorance. But who my children are is not the result of mere chance. It is the result of a very deliberate conviction to teach our children Christian values, and then to live them. Esse quam vidire. To be as it seems to be. Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. That is so bold. That is so crazy. It's so absolute. That we often teach lessons and preach sermons saying how, how we need to make it more relative. It's a proverb. So yeah, it's not absolute. It's not a guarantee. And yet it is fundamentally true and sound in principle. What we train our children to do is what they will live their life doing. Will they 
be influenced by the world? Are my children influenced by the world now? Yes, they are. Are they free to make sinful and destructive choices for their life that will be beyond my control? Yes. This cannot be my concern. My concern has to be to build an influence on their life that is built on genuine faith and genuine love. And folks, I need you to understand. Let's make this clear. The objective is not to have kids who grow up and go to church. The objective is not to have kids who had a momentary salvation experience. The objective is to make followers of Jesus. We have to stop pretending that some get-saved moment and going to church is a substitute for devotion and service of Jesus Christ. Because the truth is that for believers, the supremacy of Jesus is the only reasonable foundation for family life. You can get an awful lot wrong. Take it from me. You can get an awful lot wrong if you get this one thing at least a little bit right. You'll likely be rejoicing in its blessings. In practical terms, what does it mean? It means that our stated priority is the supremacy of Jesus and our decisions, our choices, and our actions match what we say. It means that following Jesus is more important than school. It is more important than sports. <gasps> it is more important than band or clubs or any of our extracurriculars. It's more important than what college you go to. It's more important than what job you have. It's more important than how much money you make, and it's more important than what stuff you get to collect. People say, yeah, but you're a minister. You're a minister, so that's easy for you. Oh, let me tell you, being a minister has not made it any easier. My children have grown up in a fishbowl of ministry. All eyes upon them. And sadly, they have seen every form of hypocrisy that Christians can dish out. And we have had to work extra hard to reassure them that the kingdom of Christ is truer and greater than the broken and sinful people like us who populate it. And so that by spending their lives calling them to this truth, I can repeat to them now what Paul says to us. If then, you have been raised with Christ. Seek things that are above. Where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. 
folks, I didn't come up here to brag. I will tell you right now, be enormously easy for me to do just that. And I don't claim this victory as mine. I simply, along with my wife, tried to be faithful to this principle that Jesus is bigger than 